Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Well, it feels like it's been a while since I've been able to say this, but I have very little housekeeping to share with you this week, other than to remind you that, of course, submissions are still open, talestoterrify.com slash submissions, and to say we'll be announcing the winner of our design contest very soon. We ended up with some fun and absolutely chilling images, and I'm excited to share them with you. Thanks to everyone who submitted. We've got something a little different to kick off our episode this week. Author Fred Venturini has a fantastic new novel coming out next week, Tuesday, June 22nd to be exact. I've had the privilege to dig into it early and while I'm still a few chapters away from the end, I've enjoyed it far too much to keep it to myself. So, we've secured an excerpt from the book that I think you'll absolutely love. Tonight, I'll be reading you the prologue from To Dust You Shall Return, which works fantastic as a standalone intro to the dark and gruesome world of Venturini's new novel. But before I dive in, as is tradition here at Tales to Terrify, let's hear a little about the author. Fred Venturini is the acclaimed author of the novels The Heart Does Not Grow Back and Escape of Light, 
and his short fiction has been featured in Chuck Palahniuk's Burnt Tongues Anthology. His latest release, To Dust You Shall Return, has been praised by award-winning horror author Richard Thomas and number one New York Times best-selling author Chuck Palahniuk, who described To Dust You Shall Return as lined with barbed wire, concertina wire, and spike strips that deliver the story deep into the reader's skin. Children of the Night, please lend me your ears for the prologue to Fred Venturini's To Dust You Shall Return. Lester Mansell had almost emptied his Sunday bottle of whiskey when a ghost emerged from the shimmering heat. A ghost was all he could figure it for, because even from a half-mile away, he could tell it was Geraldine's boy, Adam. The kid had been dead a long time, even longer than his mama, God rest her soul. Doting wife, devoted cook, quick to give Lester what he wanted. But Adam, her son from a long-dead husband, was a blight on the town of Harlow. They had taken steps to wipe away years ago. Jerry, had she been alive, would have understood. Lester guzzled the rest of his bottle and blinked, trying to make sure that his vision matched reality. His eyes were murky with the glaze of booze and clouded with cataracts. Yet there was Adam in the distance, strolling up the driveway that had been turned to mud by a passing thunderstorm that morning. He knew the boy by the cadence of his walk and aloofness to his gait, as if everything underfoot belonged to him. The way young boys tested their power over the world was always through cruelty, and through that cruelty they'd usually discover the boundaries between right and wrong, and downright depraved. Sometimes a few lashes with a belt helped the lesson stick, but not with Adam. No, sir, not him. He never cried, not once. And when the boy had taken to laughing during his beatings, well, that's when Lester Mansell had found himself trying other methods of punishment. Methods that he never knew would please him until he'd tried them. But Adam was broken from birth and never blamed his stepfather's actions for his own behavior. When the kid was nine, Long before Lester had ever laid a hand on him, he had caught Adam in the barn with a litter of kittens and... Lester shook away the memory, blinking again, forcing beads of sweat loose as his forehead crinkled. 
They caught up in the creases around his eyes, and when he opened them, the sweat was burning, and Adam was closer. He had died at nineteen, a tall boy, just as tall as the figure who approached his porch. His rocking chair had gone to rocking faster, and Moses, his German shepherd, had disappeared, slinking away without so much as a sound. The storm had given way to a scorching August sun that baked up a humidity thick enough to stir with a wooden spoon. He sat there, rocking, soaked in sweat tinged with alcohol, waiting for dark when it would be cool enough to sleep and wake up and start drinking again. The mines were long closed now, and Harlow was hemorrhaging, a heart spasming out its last few beats after a vital artery had been blocked. Those who could work left. Those who farmed stayed. And those too old to work who owned no ground and knew for damn certain their lungs were black as starless night just stayed around to die, drunk and alone. The figure stopped at the porch steps. Even at that distance, Lester had to lean and squint to make out all his features. Tall, slender, brown eyes that smoldered with some internal heat. The familiar crew cut was gone, replaced by curly locks the color of dead leaves. Come to pull me down to hell, then, boy? He tipped out the last few drops of whiskey and slung the bottle into the field where it wrapped against healthy stalks of corn. Not his, of course. Lester's ranch house had a few acres of tillable land that he'd sold to the Murrays, and that was enough to cover his daily bottle until the end of time. Adam smiled his teeth as yellow and jagged as the cornstalks would be by October. You think I'm a ghost? Demons, more like, I imagine, Lester said. Ain't much to take, though. I ain't but a sack of skin and guts, all of it soaked with whiskey. Punch a few holes in me, and then all the demons in hell can get a buzz. Lester laughed feeling lightheaded. How long had it been since he laughed? The boy's emergence was a gift. Death was at his doorstep at long last. He'd been inviting him in all this time. You never saw me die, Adam said. No, sir, Lester said. Just saw you take a deer slug to the chest out at Red Rock Ridge. Saw you take another one in the back for good measure as you climbed off the edge and plummeted, oh, two hundred feet to the bottom. Never saw you buried, but I'll take Roy Carver's word for it. Couldn't stomach seeing you like that. You was my boy, after all, wasn't you? It's Mayor Carver now. Adams said, isn't it? Lester grinned. 
Funny how the stench of death could make you feel so alive. Come to visit the woodshed one more time before we go. Lester licked his lips. Adam watched him, expressionless, his face a void. I'm not a ghost, he said, nor a demon. Shit, Lester said. He got up from his rocker. His joints crackled. We cut your ass down at Red Rock, what now, fifteen years ago? To the day, Adam replied. What a mess that was. The year started with the collapse of Mine Six, and Adam was one of the workers swallowed up in it. He ended up as the only survivor. And what the boy did to survive was a pox that the town could only wash off with blood. Fifteen years, and yet you ain't aged a goddamn day, Lester said. But I have, Adam said. Some. Come to drag me to hell either way, Lester said. So it ain't nothing worth fighting over. Come on inside. We'll toast to my demise, you and me. The house was rotting along with the rest of Harlow. The boards creaked and groaned with each step, covered in brown spots where the roof leaked overhead. The spots shined with puddles from the storm. Lester had long given up trying to put out the buckets. Let the whole damn kingdom fall in around him. He set tin cups on the table. Adam didn't take the cue to sit, standing at the head of the table instead, his palms resting on the oak planks. He examined the grain. It looked as if he was trying to remember something. His mom, perhaps. The table hadn't seen a fine meal since Lupus got her back in 26. Sit, boy, Lester said. At least be a courteous guest before you try to kill me. A guest, Adam said, marveling at the words. A guest in my own house. My mother's house. My house, Lester said. Mine alone since the day you left. Didn't have much of a choice in leaving, Adam said. That much is true, Lester answered, rummaging through the cupboard. He knew where the bottles were, of course, but what he really needed to remember was where he'd stashed his shotgun. I'll stand just the same, Adam said, just as Lester found the weapon. It had sat there since he'd plugged a few deer during the winter, oiled up and ready, stored away from his stash of rifles specifically for him to serve up any rude guests with a bitter surprise of lead and fire. So be it, Lester said. I want to give you an easier shot, Adam said, just as Lester raised the gun. 
You think I wouldn't remember where you stored your shotgun? He moved away from the table, offering up his whole torso. An easy, close-range, center-mass target. Lester hesitated. He'd seen Adam shot like this before. Deer slugged to the chest. Bloody, tattered clothes. He was dead. No way around it. Adam was dead. Who was this? What was this? It's me, Daddy, Adam said. You always liked it when I called you that. But only after the spankings turned into something else, right? Daddy? Lester blinked the sweat away from his eyes. The house was a hot box in the August heat, hot as the stoked pits of hell. You ain't a ghost, Lester said. You're a goddamn monster. You're the monsters, Adam said. You, Mayor Carver, Baxter Murray, the whole lot of you. He took a step forward, daring him to shoot. Lester took a step back. I've come to cleanse this place, to not only slay the monsters, but teach those who would be taught and raise up those with blistered hands who have toiled in your service. He came closer. Lester tightened his grip, ready to fire. Do you know what that is called? A being who can kill monsters? A force who is a dripping sword of righteous slaughter, whose hand is stayed by the cleansing tears of loyalty and redemption? A god. Of course, that's what Adam wanted to say. But Lester answered with a pull of the trigger. The barrels puked fire, the tin cans rattled, and Adam crashed to the floor, shreds of his cotton workshirt floating in the air. The slug had bit into his chest, a center-mass bullseye. A shot even a man, blind drunk and trembling, couldn't have missed. And didn't. Lester rested the shotgun on the table and looked upon it with the sweetness and endearment of a long-lost lover. He knew that the next pull of the trigger would belong to him. That the ghost laying dead on his floor wasn't real but had been torn off the scabs of all his sins, and even whiskey couldn't dull the snake of loathing that had uncoiled inside him. And then Adam rose to his feet. Come with me, Daddy, he said. Adam dragged him to hell, all right, literally dragged him pulling along a man damn near three hundred pounds as easily as one might carry an empty pail. Lester gave up fighting and made himself into the limpest weight possible. But it didn't matter. Adam had taken him by the ankle and pulled him through meadows of overgrown grasses that nicked at his skin, into the woods where the branches and sticker bushes lashed and cut him. Into the mouth of darkness in those woods, a laid-open vein 
into the oldest of the mines. Then, only darkness, the cool ground kissing his wounds, the sound of his body scooting along, echoing off the damp walls, along with the steady drip of water. Wells and springs, above or below, he couldn't be sure. Forever, all the way down, 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 down. Darkness like blindness. Colder until he shivered. The booze wrung out of him, bubbling up in every stinking pore. The cold sweat made him a slimy thing, just another slug in the dark. The kind of thing that would scatter when the light hit it. You don't understand, Adam said. It felt like hours since he last spoke. You never did understand. None of you did. You passed your judgments. You sentenced me. You executed me. All without understanding. But what I've been given, it's a gift I want to share. But only with those who truly and rightly understand what I went through. Only those who want to survive and will pay the price to do it. The dragging slowed. Lester sensed it before he heard it. He was not alone. Panicked breathing rattled off the walls. Whimpering, crying. Vision was worthless, so the body had gifted him with hearing terror and confusion in amplified, maddening detail. He didn't need a formal introduction to know the men who were trapped in the hole with him, and he knew exactly what Adam expected them to do to survive. I'll have you know my ordeal was worse, Adam said. Much tighter quarters. Well, many of you have room to roam. I sucked water from dampened mud, whereas I left you pails of fresh water to sustain you. And I was trapped with only three other men, not the feast you have to choose from. Lester felt his ankle released, and his leg crashed to the ground, as lifeless and heavy as waterlogged firewood. He was exhausted and sick and needed a drink. I'm sealing the mine behind me, as this is the last of you, he said, louder now, so every inch of the mine could hear. How far would his voice echo? Hundreds of feet? Thousands? My stepfather, Lester Mansell, is here now. He hasn't been down here six days like the rest of you, and he's just as fat as you all surely remember him. Moaning, whispering, crawling. Lester heard Mayor Carver's voice, an unmistakable rasp burnished by cigars and two decades of mine soot. He's Roy Carver now, Lester thought. You done been de-elected from the likes of it. He couldn't make out what Roy was saying over Adam's footsteps which fell like crunching thunderclaps growing weaker 
as Adam got farther away, closer to the light that Lester knew he'd never see again. Only then could he make out what Roy Carver was saying. At least one word. The only word that mattered. Hungry. No more footsteps. Adam was gone, and the only things left were the monsters. That was the prologue to Fred Venturini's To Dust You Shall Return, as read by me. Before we move on, now that I've whet your appetite, a quick synopsis of what you can expect in the rest of the novel. A man ruled by darkness, a town ruled by evil. Only one can survive. To Dust You Shall Return takes place in the small town of Harlow, where no one is ever allowed to leave. It is there that Beth Jarvis, a rebellious teenager with an inescapable fate hanging over her head, consults Chicago mob legend Curtis Quinn to overthrow the town's supernatural ruler, the mayor. It is up to the two of them to join forces in this propulsive, mystic-level narrative that early reviewers have described as John Wick meets the Wicker Man. I've highly enjoyed the wild and gory ride so far. I highly encourage you to pick up your copy of To Dust You Shall Return when it drops next Tuesday, June 22nd. You can find it everywhere books are sold. Take a read and drop me a line. I'd love to hear what you think. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Our second tale tonight comes from Dan Micklethwaite. Dan Micklethwaite writes stories in a shed in the north of England. His short fiction has featured in Podcastle, Daily Science Fiction, Flame Tree's Epic Fantasy Anthology, and elsewhere. His debut novel, The Less Than Perfect Legend of Donna Creosote, was published in the UK by Blue Moose Books. He is currently at work on his second novel and a story collection. In his spare time, he likes bouldering, cooking, and painting. He can be found on Twitter at Dan underscore M underscore writer. Listen with me, children of the night, to Dan Micklethwaite's A Rune Prayer for Bjarvi, first published in Flame Tree Publishing's Epic Fantasy Anthology, 2019. Beneath the dark hood of her reindeer furs, Aleska felt as though she was becoming that creature, as if the fuzz of fresh antlers would burst from her skull. She wished for it, fervently, as the snow lashed her face. She longed for that freedom, that beastly simplicity, and most of all, for the gift of that species' vernacular, to make up for the voice she had sworn to forsake. She had mimicked those calls as a taunt in her youth. While playing at hide-and-go-hunt with her siblings, she remembered the taste of the breath that she'd held, lest the dance of its steam were to give her away. It was nothing at all like the flavor of ink, only a mixture of wildness and cold. But if she were such an animal, then it wouldn't be just her siblings she had to contend with nor just the storm. She would be quarried to wolves and the hunger of men. She looked down as she thought this, and the ground underfoot was the color of corpses, as if drained by the blood tithe that Vatican took. No. No. She shook her head fiercely, felt the peacock feather swinging on the chain round her neck, it didn't matter what she'd been, let alone what she wanted. 
She was the first of the Quill Maidens, and it was a bad omen in peacetime to use the battle god's name. She must contemplate only the most hopeful of verses, and keep her mind on the rune prayer she'd scribed for the harvest, or else she might anger Bacchanal, the weaver of fate. It was to that goddess the clan gave their highest devotion. Aleska lurched on through the boreal darkness, hunching her shoulders, relieved to find shelter between two rows of tents. As their reindeer hide trembled and bones shook around her, she tried to convince herself she was on the right track, that she would shortly be able to complete her delivery, hoped that she'd not gone astray in the storm. Although everything had seemed more immense as a child, more labyrinthine, she'd had so much more trust in her innate navigation, always felt certain of finding her way. She'd spent a great many hours exploring the camp, charting as many escape routes as possible, so as she could always stay clear of her two older brothers, Rygar and Ovin, whenever they chose to set out in pursuit. She'd known where the shadows would fall from each tent, and which were most useful for covering tracks. She'd known where the food would be cooked on each evening, where the scent of the fire would swallow her own. Even when their younger sister, Lyja, had grown old enough to join them, Aleska had often outfoxed her as well. Only occasionally caught by that sly, nimble mind, those sly, nimble fingers clutching her sleeve. But there was nothing to pull her back now, save the blizzard, as she took a guess and stepped out in the open again. Stumbled around till she found what she wanted. Her destination, finally, as clear as a beacon, not more than twenty-five paces ahead. It was the clan's largest tent, and with the light from inside, the leather was blushing the shade of a wound. Chief Biarvi Rognonser leaned on the table, studying the map that was carved in the top. Despite herself, Aleska felt drawn to his eyes. Though they were sunken of late, and the whites had grown yellower and threaded with blood, they held a stronger kind of focus than any others she had known. He didn't blink once, not until he looked up. She lifted the feather from around her neck, and balanced it across her ink-blotted palms. He broke into a smile at this demonstration of fealty, and raised a hand from the table to stroke his braided blonde beard. His gaze flickered down to the eye of the feather, and then back up to meet her own. He remembered himself then, and the smile disappeared. Sometimes, unbidden, she missed his old laughter, the ways he had tried to lift her mood. But she herself had not laughed for twenty-three seasons, when she'd still been a child, and it was several now since she had even felt like she might. Aleska, he said, I trust you are well. She nodded curtly. Good. He scratched his beard. That is very good. I have some vital work for you. I will need your finest, most inspirational verses. 
Taking this for a prompt, she reached inside of her furs for the rune prayer she'd brought. It was a traditional plea for a generous harvest, albeit refashioned with her inimitable flair. She held it towards him, and, after a moment's pause, he accepted. Their fingers didn't touch. His focus returned as he read through the parchment. This is indeed a fine piece, he said, walking over to the brazier that stood by his throne. It will augur well with Bacchanal, and I am hopeful. She will bless us with plenty this season, after the thaw. The brazier was made from the spears of his enemies and the upside-down helmet of his father, Rognan. He rolled the prayer carefully into a ball and tossed it in amidst the embers. A fresh plume of smoke spiraled up to the roof. Aleska was relieved, as always, to find her words adjudged favorable. To fail was to risk losing fingers, then hands. But I fear, Biarvi said, that our claim upon the Girensfjord will have to be reinforced before the thaw comes. He jabbed at the fjord on the graven map and then at both their own campsite and the permanent town on the opposite bank, Girensby. Aleska did not understand. They had a long-standing agreement with the headman of that settlement, Harjak Saldoser, to share the harvest from these waters. She had recorded the terms of the treaty herself and seen it burnt that it might be observed by the gods. As if he could tell what she was thinking, Biarvi shook his head. Our truce with Harjak, he scratched his beard, is no longer practical. With all the other clans we have defeated, all the extra mouths we have to feed, we simply cannot afford to surrender half of this season's catch. Harjak will not agree to altered terms, and so... Bjarvi stroked the longest braid on his chin, then swept his hand across his throat. Aleska knew he was the chief, and yet she felt as though her own authority had been undermined. Had he asked one of the other quill maidens to write this new offer? Or had he not even tried? It is all arranged, he shrugged. We will fight them on the Girinsfjord itself, which seems only fitting. He brought his hands together from either side of the chart, in imitation of combat. Applause for his plan. It echoed. He walked past the table and stood tall before her, took the feather from her hands, and looped it back over her head, patted it down upon her snow-covered chest. You know what I need you to do, he said. I want you to write us a battle hymn. He lifted his hand to her face, and the focus in his eyes gave way, for a moment, to a misting of doubt and I want you to write a prayer for me to remind Bacchanal and Varican of my mightiest deeds, that they may admit me to their crystalline halls with honor. You know, 
he whispered. Just in case I am killed. Aleska mixed her ink out of reindeer bone black, albumin from the eggs of inguilan ptarmigans, and poppy seed honey from the bees to the south. She glanced at the receptacle that sat in her lectern, all too aware of the lure of its scent, its flavor. Just a quick dip of her finger, she told herself, to check that it was fresh enough and the blend was correct. Yes, only that. She swallowed. She dipped her peacock quill, too, for the third time tonight, though she had not yet written a meaningful mark, only an inadvertent blemish at the corner of the leaf. The feather stared at it in disappointment, then back at her in expectation, as though to remind her of the station she held. The quill maidens traditionally plucked their tools from black swans, which roosted upon the banks of several lakes across Inguiland. But after her rune prayer to mark his accession, Biarvi had decided she deserved something more. He had traded for this in one of the great southern cities and bade her use it first to pray for more trade of that kind so the clan could become even more prosperous, even more stable. She had been happy to oblige, proud to be his favorite, even honored to share his bed, when he had asked. The feather's hues were faded now, though, and the point had been trimmed and sharpened so often that it was difficult for Aleska to use it with comfort. When she dipped it, the ink stained her fingertips, like the onset of frostbite. The scent became heightened. She stared at the page. She had always been taught that a rune prayer made without sincerity, without belief, could easily transition to become a rune curse. And yet, she found it increasingly difficult to praise Biarvi honestly and to endorse his attacks on former partners in trade, now that his interest in trading had guttered given way to a passion for slaughter and theft. The bile bubbled up in Aleska's throat, overwhelming the honey, the call of the void, and she had to calm herself quickly before she wrote something she might come to regret. There was another blotch on the parchment, but no runes, no betrayal of her sacred and fortunate duty. She had always stayed true to what she'd been taught, whenever she had resented her silence the most. In the earlier seasons, she'd been reminded how lucky she was to be her parents' first daughter, to be spared the life of toil and combat that her siblings must endure. And, sure enough, all three had been involved in Biarvi's campaigning, but they had also survived with little more than a handful of bruises and scars. She had always been taught that her prayers would protect them, and so the least she could do was to scribe a few more. Even if Elijah, the youngest, the fiercest, persisted in claiming that she did not believe. Once finished, Aleska fed the verses into her own sacred brazier, 
fashioned from the bronze-plated skull of a goat. The flames danced in its mouth and its nostrils and eye sockets, and smoke wriggled out through a hole in the top. She smoothed some more parchment on her slanted pine lectern, primed for the battle hymn, and redipped the quill. She had to reach so far into the well now that it stained her fingers past the nails, as though the frostbite were advancing. The scent became even stronger, the void hunger deepening, and she raised her hand slowly to her opening mouth, then shook her head. No. And wiped the ink on her furs. The feather was still watching, the goat skull as well. Beckenal's spies. She must not disappoint her. She must find the right words. Snow trawled the camp like a fisherman's net. The quill maidens were caught in it, and had been since the hymn was presented at dawn. Aleska was shivering, and so were the rest. It was an old, sad joke that a permanent peace would endure throughout Inguiland if only nobody wanted to fight during winter. The season lasted so long. But it had never so far proven a deterrent to warriors, much less to their chiefs, and it was a source of great renown to claim a victory in such weather. Still, this storm was especially heavy, and Aleska wondered if the soldiers would even be able to distinguish their cohorts from foes. Try as she might, from only a few feet away, she couldn't make out the faces of those in the ranks, only row after row of smudged, shady figures, oversized runes, in the parchment-pale air. She squinted to read them, embellished from memory. Almost all of them would be wearing leather armor, or fur, with only the few who'd been south having their own coat of mail. Most would have skis, emblazoned with intricate, distinctive motifs. Others would ride down the slope on their shields, with deerbone attached to the soles of their boots, for traction, once they reached the ice. These were ornately graven as well, and she had applied ink to her brothers to better bring out the detail. It didn't matter whether enemies could see this or not. It was mainly for Verican to ward off his tithe. The rest would have axe-shaped medallions for that purpose, and she pictured hands clutching these as they readied to charge. Then they all raised their weapons and gave the clan's battle cry. Even the women, even the boys, everyone except Aleska and her fellow quill maidens. She reached for the feather, but there was nothing more she could do. After reading the hymn and expressing his satisfaction, Biarvi had assured her that they held the advantage. The soldiers of Girinsby, he had said, would have to struggle onto the fjord from the town's meager harbor, whereas the clan's troops could generate speed from the hill. And this did indeed appear to be the case. They were a blur as they hurtled away down the valley, their battle cry vanishing into the storm. 
much closer, though, and clearer. She could see the chief in a huddle with his most trusted warriors, overlooking the action as much as they could, rather than taking their place in the charge. In her thick, dark furs, which fluttered like wings, Aleska felt like a carrion crow. She was prowling the plateau with the other quill maidens, scavenging names, and they were just another murder among the masses of the dead. She found herself wishing that she was such a bird, even if it meant pecking eyeballs and flesh, because it felt somehow preferable to these grim ministrations preferable to playing hide-and-go-hunt with her siblings, only turned around this time, so they were the prey. Stalking their forms through the maze of cold bodies, until at last she discovered them, Rygar and Ovin, the pride of her family, pallid and slain. The proof of her failure, a flaw in her verse, No. No. She would not believe it. She told herself, as she shut their glazed eyes, as she wiped at her own, that there were some factors for which she could not be accountable. Nor Verikin, nor even Bacchanal, either. None of them, after all, had been in command. It had gone wrong that afternoon when he sent the reinforcements. The blizzard was much too thick to see anything at all by that point, and the wind was raging, and even though they felt a duty to relieve the vanguard, they still should never have gone in like that. But she couldn't tell Biarvi. And no one else had. Instead, the accepted explanation was that Harjak played dirty, inspired by Mardi Kyle the sly trickster god, and had his men set a trap at the base of the hill. A great many warriors were toppled before even reaching the ice. Some died in the falling, and others had simply been butchered like seals. No. She shook her head viciously, wrestling the truth of her brother's torn flesh. She turned away, stumbling, and tried to believe that they would somehow still follow, would chase her back through the camp, through the shadows and food scents, until at last she could manage to give them the slip. She longed to call out, to taunt them, and laugh as she used to, but her mouth only gagged with the flavor of ink. She could no longer name them, except in her prayers. And what about Lysha? Aleska hadn't seen her on the plateau, she realized, either living or dead, and she wasn't sure now which direction led back there, wasn't sure she had the strength in her legs to go look. But then, if her sister was alive, it was more likely that she'd be the one who came looking. Little Lysha, who had always been the best at that, natural, always been boldest and wildest of all of them, been proud to be asked to fight in these battles, eager to demonstrate what she could do. Not because she wanted to impress anybody, least of all any gods, but
but purely because she was gifted at combat, as Aleska had shown herself gifted with words. And was going to have to prove herself gifted again in commending the souls of the dead to the gods and praying that, tomorrow, they did not lose any more. She couldn't stand to keep scribing these repetitive elegies, couldn't stand to keep fighting the void hunger nightly, the ravening need for that mind-numbing warmth. She was frozen from standing all day in the cold, shivering, sniveling, adrift in the snickets of the snow-ravaged camp, blind from the storm, but muscles remembering, attuned to the lure of the ink in her tent. No. No. Her fellow quill maidens had lost loved ones as well, and it was up to her as the first to stay strong for the rest, for the clansfolk. Her despair would be fruitless. It would not bring them back. Rhaegar and Ovin. All she could do was honor their sacrifice and make a case for their admission to the crystalline halls. The storm had eased for the time being, but Aleska was still shaking as she assumed her position by the funeral pyre, even though she was close to the flames and the lowest of corpses were already charred and the fat on the higher ones was starting to sizzle. She tried not to breathe in too much of the smoke, tried to keep her eyes open and fixed on her task. The other maidens circled the bonfire beside her, and Aleska confirmed they were ready as well. Giving a nod, she tossed her first rune prayer into the blaze, watching as the others followed her lead, each in turn, again and again, until their baskets were empty. She had been taught to consider this scattering seeds, an act that contained hope of renewal. She had learnt to move quickly once she planted the last, in case she got trapped by the relatives who rushed in to start mourning, linking arms as they chanted the names of their dead. But as she retreated, a hand grabbed her sleeve, threatening to thrust her towards the inferno, before wrenching her free from the chaos instead. When she managed at last to blink the smoke clear, she wasn't surprised to find out who it was. I imagine you wrote them both wonderful tributes, Lyja said, tugging the feather so hard that the chain bit into Aleska's neck. I imagine that you said that they were very brave and loyal, and that they put the clan before themselves. Didn't you? She half spat the last words then swallowed them back so she could spit them again. Didn't you? Aleska was silent. It was always forbidden for quill maidens to speak, even on such an occasion as this, and she had not broken her abstinence for twenty-three seasons since shortly before Elijah herself learned to talk. They had never shared a conversation the way other people did. She could only hold her sister's gaze to try and convey the extent of her anguish, 
to show her remorse that she couldn't commiserate properly. The best she could do was to write an even more potent rune prayer, an even more fervent hymn. You really think there is some goddess in the sky? Lyja hissed. Some great and powerful being who can shape our fates as we demand, and who will remember us and safeguard our souls once we die, honestly? She spat for real this time, and it drilled into the compacted snow like a spear. She tugged at the quill again, then let it go. Aleska felt it swinging against the furs of her chest, out of sync with her rapidly hammering pulse. I'm not a complete heretic, though, sister. Lysia hissed. I still believe in Varikent. I believe in his blood tithe. And I believe that your master... Her eyes bulged wide and then lowered abruptly. She bowed obsequiously and hurried away. Aleska knew the signature sound of his tread. He had approached her quarters often in the early seasons of his reign. Although the prospect of punishment had still lingered between them, it had always seemed a game back then to keep from laughing at his stories, to stop herself screaming whenever they fucked. She nearly cried out now as she felt his hand upon her shoulder, but not in pleasure. Aleska he said, leaning close, and she could practically taste the mead on his breath. She thought that there were even icicles of that liquor in the braids of his beard. Alaska, he tried again. This day has not been a good one. He shook his head, but without losing focus. Personally, I thought your hymn was exceptional but it must not have been enough. He gestured toward the conflagration, as if she couldn't still feel its heat on her skin, as if she wasn't still burning inside with her guilt, with the fear he was going to punish her failure. Still, tomorrow is another chance, Aleska, he continued, almost belching, and we shall both have to do better. He reached for her cheek, wiping roughly with his thumb at the side of her mouth. Perhaps she had left some ink there, but she could no longer taste it, no longer smell it. Only his drink, and the hero's flesh roasting when the wind changed direction. And you must write me that rune prayer, Aleska, he said, with all my braveness inside it for I truly do intend to lead the vanguard tomorrow. I am going to throw everything we have at that bastard, he growled, as he gestured across to Girin's fjord, his eyes finding Harjak's answering pyre. Aleska could tell he was seething that it was a much smaller funeral, that he had lost the day's skirmish. He would surely stop at nothing to make amends for that wrong. The eye sockets of the bronze-plated goat skull were watching, 
judging. Aleska swallowed and replaced the receptacle in its hole in the lectern, wiping her mouth with the back of her hand. The ink was cloying and warm as it dripped down her throat. She could already feel the void encroaching, blunting the splinters and jags of her consciousness, attempting to render sorrow a stranger. She knew she should probably have kept her mind clear, being all too aware of the work she must do. But she just felt as though, sometimes, she couldn't do it without. The goat skull looked doubtful. Aleska didn't care. She had always been taught that it was unwise to write anything she didn't believe, anything insincere, just in case it transitioned to become a rune curse. And yet, increasingly, it seemed that was what her chief expected her to do, to endanger her own soul for the profit of his. But what choice did she have? The peacock feather trembled, splashing ink on the parchment, like the dragon spit that burst from the plains in the north. It looked as if the night sky had been turned inside out, like a pelt newly flensed. Dark had become light, and vice versa. So it was the constellations now that were fragments of void, calling her, begging her. No. No. She tried to keep focused, to conjure some truth she could write to praise Biarvi, to recommend him to the gods. Perhaps, she thought, she could write a verse about the way he had seemed at the start, and hope that it would outweigh all the things he'd done since, hope that every deity save Varikan had remained blind to all that. No. She shook her head, and her hand inadvertently scattered more ink, some of it even splashing the brazier. She cringed at the waste. At the waste she had witnessed that day. She cast aside the stained parchment and picked up another. She would rather do her best to improve the battle hymn. There were hundreds of lives more important than his. Those who could still walk dragged the dead and the wounded up the slope from the Girin's fjord, piled upon war sleds and discarded shields. Cresting the plateau in the blizzard, they looked like spirits passing through into crystalline halls. The quill maidens were waiting, but they were quickly crowded out by other members of the clan, those too young, too old, or too infirm to have fought who scurried around from body to body, inspecting the faces, inspecting the markings on the bone skates and skis. Wails of recognition echoed. Pledges of vengeance were carried off by the wind. Aleska wanted to force her way past them, to play hide-and-go-hunt once again with her sister. But she was seldom at her most popular in the wake of a battle, and so held herself back avoiding the brunt of their incipient grief. She was certain that someone had just spat on her furs, but with the coating of snow she couldn't see where, much less find the culprit. 
Not that she blamed them, whoever they were. She blamed herself. She blamed BRV. Instead of adapting his strategy and attempting an ambush from another direction, he had simply ordered his army into tightly packed ranks and sent one after the other straight down the hill. Numbers, he had told her at dawn, will be crucial. They can't kill us all, he had said with a smile. Even then, for all his brave talk, he and his warriors had only gone down at the very back of the rearguard, watching for those who might try to retreat. Cowards would be slaughtered, as surely as heroes. The only comfort Aleska could take as she stood there shivering, the only thing that seemed able to shore up her faith, was that even though the survivors and salvage teams had returned from the Girinsfjord three times already, the great Bjarvi Ragnanzer had not been among them. But her respite was fleeting. She finally found Lyja, being hauled on a sled. She darted forwards, stumbling and landing on her front in the snow, forcing herself up, scrambling further, clinging to the hope that she had seen the legs twitch, that her sister was one of the many who were just badly hurt, that she would have at least one more chance to write a safeguarding prayer. Little Lysha, after all, was the boldest and wildest, made for such battles. She wasn't the kind who was easily killed. When the sled stopped, however, so did the twitching. So did Aleska's breath as she slumped into the drift again and pressed an ear to her sister's chest. There was nothing inside it, not even a whisper. Only an emptiness, a chasm, into which the echoes of their final argument flooded. Lyja's harsh words and Aleska's own silence, followed by the tears that were freezing on her cheeks. She had loved her brothers, but their passing had somehow been less of a shock. In fact, it had almost been expected of them, and they had believed that if they died, well then, they would be invited to feast in the home of the gods. But her sister had not. She had spoken only of a void that was even darker and more lasting than that which Aleska invoked with the ink. She had repeatedly protested that if this day should come, when it came, none of that ink was to be wasted on her. Yet Aleska knew no other way. Through the tears, through the cold, she was already composing the prayer in her mind, twisting the quill between shivering fingers, holding the eye of that feather over her sister's pale face as Bechanel's witness that she might see how worthy Lyja had been. Her pleas were disrupted by a sudden commotion, a mixture of panic and rage and relief, as Biarvi sliced through the curtain of snow. He held his battle skis in one hand and a severed head in the other. He searched every face in the shambling crowd and only came to a halt when he caught sight of her. 
he tossed the head through the air, and it wasn't until it landed beside her that she recognized Harjak, the ruler of Girinsby. Write that into my thanks to the goddess, Bjarvi called, before he turned to parade through the rest of the camp. In her dark furs, gore-crusted, Aleska felt as though she was becoming a troll, the offspring of Mardikail, the sly trickster god. It wasn't antlers that she worried might thrust from her temples, but rather poison-barbed horns, separating and vile. Her eyes likewise streamed with the snow and the wind as she staggered, inhuman, towards the chief's tent. If she was such a monster, she thought, then it would make her existence easier to bear. It would be easier to live with the lies she had spread. If she had no alternative, if it was just in her nature. But she wasn't. Not really. And neither was he. The air in his quarters was sour with his sweat, but not unbearably so. It was countered by the powerful sweetness of mead. He was swaying by the map table, holding a writen. He spilled some of the liquor when he saw she was there. He bore a fresh cut on his forehead, and one down the left of his face, running into his beard, but he still managed to flash her a smile without wincing. She held out the feather as a sign of her fealty. He smiled even wider. Alaska, he said, there was a time in the battle when I feared I might not see you again in this life. He pointed to both of the cuts on his face. And that was all the inspiration I needed. You should have seen me, Aleska. It was my greatest fight yet. My most absolute victory. And I couldn't have done it without you and your him. He swaggered over from behind the table and placed his hands upon her shoulders. Perhaps he could feel her tension, however, because he didn't shift his grip elsewhere, as he would have in the past. He studied her face, as focused as always. She desperately wanted to hold his gaze, to not blink, even though his eyes made her think of blood spilling on snow, his pupils a vast congregation of corpses. No. No. She tried to shake the image, the memory, but couldn't. Her fingers twitched on the feather, aching for somewhere to scribble it down. Are you all right? Bjarvi said, looking concerned. And then, as if belatedly sensing the source of her torment, he added, I know we took heavy losses, but you can rest assured they were meaningful. Because of their sacrifice, the fish harvest this season will be more than enough to keep the clan fed. He broke into a smile again, his eyes still unblinking. Why, by Beckenal's grace, some of us may even get seconds for supper. 
she realized he was trying to cheer her up. He began to slide his arms behind her back, as if to prompt her response. No, she said, and before the chief had time to even register the word, she thrust the quill deep in the side of his neck. When the blood spurted out, it slicked up her wrist. It blinded the feather and smeared Biarvi's tunic as she pushed him away. She wiped the rust on her furs as she stood over his body, watching while Varikan extracted his tithe, watching those eyes lose their focus forever. Perhaps it was guilt, even grief, that made her remember the rune prayer he'd asked for, made her contemplate writing it about the man he'd once seemed at the start of his reign, made her contemplate, even, just making it up. After all, she reflected, looking round at her life, how much worse could a rune curse actually be? She heard laughter from somewhere, and then was surprised to find out it was hers. Surprised at the way that it felt in her throat. Surprised how it sounded after twenty-three seasons. And surprised, most of all, that it did not taste of ink. That was Dan Micklethwaite's A Rune Prayer for Bjarvi, as read by Heather Thomas. Heather Thomas is a jewelry expert by day and master of none by night, dabbling in costuming, art, music, writing, and narration. She is a lifelong fan of all things horror and enjoys reading stories and novels to her friends and family when they let her. She lives in Denver, Colorado, with her husband and her spoiled rotten cat, Oni. Thank you, Heather. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Amazing fans like Kathy Robinson, a.k.a. Deadly Blonde. If you're not a supporter already, be like Kathy. Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks, from ad-free episodes and bonus content, to shoutouts and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into the show to help make it as dark and devious as possible. And we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. 
you'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Brian Rollins, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we spin dark rituals with more Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.